This is Leewood Online, a ministry of Leewood Baptist Church, located in the Kansas City area. For more information about us, visit us online at www.leewoodbaptist.com. We're doing a series on the church, and it feels actually appropriate to try to tie where we've been to uh, a series on what the church is supposed to be about. And today it feels like a tangible need to be reminded of the mercies of God, the um, grace of God, and how we walk together as people. So, so I want to kind of root us there. And what I've been trying to do these last couple of weeks is a couple of things. One is to locate our story as a church into God's larger story. And so we just kind of zoomed all the way back out and asked, what is God doing in the church? Why does the church even exist? And we said it's a demonstration of God's faithfulness to keep his promise to rescue and redeem. That's, that's what happens when we gather. We are demonstrating the faithfulness of God, and we are reminding each other of that, and we're inviting people into that. So that's kind of the why of the church. And that story God has been weaving for millennium. And then our story individually is kind of part of that story. And so we have Miss Helen kind of share the history of our church. And the Carter story is part of our story. Your story is part of our story. So, so we're trying to tell the story of who we are as a people, and in that space, talk about what's important to us, what we're trying to do as a church. But, but I've wanted to root who we are in something much, much bigger because we've experienced a ton of change and transition this year. What's happened in the last 16 to 18 months, uh, not just in our community, but globally, has raised lots of questions about the church, and not just stuff we had to do and pivot around COVID, but, but scandals in evangelicalism, stuff in our denomination that's in headlines of news. And you're left to ask, like, what is the church about anyway? Is it even worth it? Like, why do we keep doing this? It seems to be a group of broken people that keep living out their brokenness. And in some ways we would go, kind of exactly, that's kind of the deal. That is the thing where we are demonstrating God's faithfulness over and over and over again. But but I don't just want to, like, throw that away. I think you have real questions about what the church is. And so I want to use this series to kind of ground us a little bit and root us in something that's not like, new. It's not a a new idea that we've come up with or a philosophy or an agenda that we have. It's something very, very ancient. And what I'm asking the Spirit of God to do is to root us in something that's very old so that we have some stability as a church as we ask, how do we go forward? So so to talk about the why of the church being this demonstration of His faithfulness kind of drops us an anchor and makes a stable place for us. So, so we did why, and then we said, like, what are we about? If that's why the church exists, then, then what are we trying to accomplish? And again, in a very uncreative way, I just tried to root everything in the Colossians 3, 1 to 4, 6 passage. And we did have, like, one creative element. We had this little diagram that we put up last week of these circles. It's just a way to kind of capture the, the essence of what we're trying to do. The center of that is transformation. What we're aimed for as a church, Colossians would tell us, Chapter 3, verses 1 to 17, is transformation. It is God changing and transforming people. And so he does that as we receive the gospel, as we believe it and live into a gospel identity, as we repent and turn away from things that are promising a different identity in our pursuits of building identity ourselves through, through sex, money, relationships, power, approval, control, all that stuff that we chase after. We turn away from that and then turn and walk 
by the Spirit. So that's kind of those three inner clusters. And then we said there's a handle of practices, right? That's the process of transformation. There's some practices we want to give ourselves to. We want to give ourselves to the Word and to worship and to prayer and to community. And they're right there in that text. And so we just said if we give ourselves to those faithful practices, it's how we actually hear about our gospel identity and how we know what to repent of and how we know how to walk by the Spirit as people remind us and we see God's Word and we pray to Him and we respond and worship. We're we're actually changed and transformed. So there's a process and some practices. And then we said that passage tells us to live this out in certain places. So personal relationships in the family, whether you're married or single, there's, there's a call there to apply this transformation in that relationship. Social vocational settings, like the world where we live and do work and where there's injustice, we, we live it out there. And then this category of outsiders, or those who don't yet know Jesus, and it's kind of a complicated word. It doesn't feel like a very endearing word, but, but it speaks of what's true apart from Jesus, but it's actually a welcome to, to welcome people who are on the outside to the inside as they trust Christ. And so the three places where we live out this transformation are in our personal relationships, in our social and vocational settings, and in relationships with people who don't yet know Jesus. And though the idea has a movement, right, this transformation then, if we could put some arrows up, like it shows like we're moving outward. It's not just our little thing that we're being transformed and changed by. We're moving towards something much, much bigger. And we're trying to live out the realities of the good news of the gospel in these spaces and in these spheres. So that's what we're trying to do. And I said if you kind of write those words down, there's maybe 10 summary categories there. It's really reductionistic, but it gives us some handholds to say we want to give ourselves to learning how to live out our transformation and engage in these practices and then how to live out in these places an authentic relationship with Jesus that would actually begin to change our personal relationships and our workplaces and our vocations uh, where we find ourselves in society and then with people who don't yet know Christ. So that's, that's what we're trying to do. And then today what I want to do is talk about how you can be meaningfully engaged. And I want to use Ephesians chapter 4 to go there. It's amazing to me as I studied it how similar it is to the Colossians 3 passage that we were in last week. And so my hope is just to walk through this passage in my, I want to answer how can you be meaningfully engaged in the life of our church? If that's the why of the church and the what of the church, then how do you get meaningfully involved? Because you see these portraits in the scriptures, like Acts chapter 2 talks about this beautiful community, and they're giving themselves to each other, and they're sacrificing financially, and they're praying, and they're in God's Word, and they're taking communion, and they're, they're meeting together regularly, and they're hearing kind of what God's saying to them. They're being changed and transformed. And so we, we watch a portrait like that, and we see the rest of the book of Acts and all these New Testament letters, and they're pretty jagged. There's lots of brokenness in there, which kind of lets us have a comforting space to go, oh, this is still pretty difficult, but you see these demonstrations or these exhortations or these instructions of how to live. And so we just want to ask, like, how is that actually possible? What is God doing that we can actually engage in the life of our body? So, so what I want to do is talk about how to be meaningfully engaged kind of at two levels. One, how does God make that possible and what's his design? And then how do we actually try to do it in our church? And if I'm successful, I'm actually going to take you straight up to our bylaws. It's be provocative. It'll be it'll blow your mind. I want to pull you into kind of our membership commitment from our bylaws, and this is what we're giving ourselves to. So if you wonder, like, what does it mean to be part of our body? Again, I want to go back to something that's, that's old and say this is what we've tried to do because it's what God's people have always done. So that's kind of this dangler out there. You're like, oh, one day we'll get to the bylaws. It'll be fascinating. So, so I want to just hold that out as, as candy for you to keep your attention as we walk through this passage. So, so where I want to go is Ephesians chapter 4. So it's on page 977 if you're in a pew Bible. 
I think what would be helpful if I just walked through the passage, make some observations, and then try to make some meaning to it, and then kind of tie it and connect it to where we actually live our lives. And let me just say one thing as you're turning. So it's Ephesians chapter 4. It's in the New Testament. There's a black pew Bible there in front of you. It's on page 977. If you don't have a Bible, man, you're, you're welcome to take that one with you. What we have in Ephesians is a letter written to early Christians. And it's a letter written to Christians who are trying to figure out what does it mean to trust Jesus and live this out in the spaces of our life. All the things that we just said, Colossians, which is a different kind of letter, but the same idea to a different group of people. It's, it's instruction to people of, if you know Jesus, what does that actually mean? How do, you, how do you live that out? And he's been talking about how Christ came and reconciled us to him, that we were his enemies, that we were distant from him, and we were separated from him. We actually were dead in our sins, is, is the language of scriptures used. So it starts with this really dark understanding of our brokenness, but then quickly speaks a hopeful word to us to say, but Christ came into our brokenness and he took the death upon himself that we deserved and lived a life that we should have lived so his sacrificial death could actually atone for our sin. The good news of the gospel then is that outsiders can become insiders, that slaves can become free, that those who are distant can be brought close, that orphans can be made children. That's the good news of the gospel. So that's where Paul's been the last couple of chapters. And he kind of turns a corner in chapter four to make some application, right? Which is where we go to how we're trying to live. And so walk with me for a second. Let me actually just read the whole thing. And I'm not a super strong reader, so be, be gracious with me if I botch this a little bit. Uh, I won't try to fake it. I'll just stop and laugh and we can pick it up. But I'm going to go from verse one all the way to verse 16. All right. Ephesians chapter four, starting verse one. This is Paul, who's an apostle, who himself was an enemy of the church, an enemy of God, a persecutor, someone who hated God and thought he actually was serving God by persecuting his people, which is a really twisted, profound thing. Right? We normally do things that we think are good, even though they actually harm us. So that's Paul's story, which gives us hope for all of our stories. And he says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, which is actually in chains when he's writing this, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. It's a quote from Psalm 68. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But rather he, he descended into the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the shepherds and the teachers to equip the saints in the church for the work of the ministry for building up the body of Christ, which is a metaphor for the church, until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by every human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, speaking of Jesus, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together in every joint and with it, it and with and I almost made it and with which it is equipped when each part is working properly. It makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Okay, I, I, 
want you just to kind of put all of it in front of you now to break it down. Look with me in verse 1. He says, Therefore, a prisoner of Christ in the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. He's not saying make yourself worthy so God would love you. What he's saying is Christ has already called you. He's already redeemed you. Now live your life in a way that matches what Christ has done, which means for us our faith is not lived out in abstraction. It's not just a core of ideas or thoughts that you have. It's actually lived out in real life to be walked out as a command, right? It's tangible. It's visceral. It happens in real time, in real places, in real relationships. And he says to walk in a way that matches, that's worthy of this calling to which you've been called, that prisoners have been set free, that orphans have been made children, that the enemies have been reconciled, that dead people have been made alive. Live in light of that. Walk in that. What is the church about? It's about demonstrating God's faithfulness as his people live transformed lives in the spaces where they live their lives. So he says, live this out in ways that are are worthy of the calling. Again, not, not to be worthy, but in ways that match to what you have already been called to, he says. And then he says, do this in all humility and with gentleness and with patience, bearing with one another in love. And if you were here last week, that sounds a whole lot like um, Colossians 3, 5 to 11. It's this demonstration or expression of what it means to walk by the Spirit. Instead of anger and malice and hatred and defensiveness and using people and taking advantage of people, instead of that, we actually, because of the Spirit, can live in humility and in gentleness and with patience and do that with one another in relationships, in love. And he says, for the goal is to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So he's saying what Christ is after in the church is to have a people that live in light of what he's accomplished for them and not in abstract ways, but in very tangible ways that they're turning away from finding their own identity and their own power and approval, comfort, control, achievement, accomplishment. And they're actually now moving towards people the way even Jesus moves towards us with humility and with gentleness and with patience, right? We're living into what Christ has actually accomplished for us and the goal is to have this unity and it's interesting the language in verse 3 he says be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace right we already have it so the goal is to maintain it to to live in light of that to foster that to protect it to to do things that would actually make us more like we're unified than than less unified Later on, he'll actually say that we should attain that unity. So it's a dynamic thing. It's not a one and done, like we had it, now we can just coast. It's a constant battle for us because in relationships with broken people, as you and yourself are a broken person and you bump into them, it creates more and more brokenness and friction. So these patterns of humility and gentleness and patience, these aren't just like nice ideas. This is the grease by which these gears move towards transformation and redemption, right? It's the way that we relate to each other. And what's fascinating is anytime that God talks about the church, like in Romans 12 or 1 Corinthians 12 or in 1 Peter 4, he always has a section here about our character being expressed in love rather than in competing with each other. And comparing each other and ranking against each other and feeling insecure from each other right there's there's patterns that we have lived into and inherited in a fallen and broken world that we don't just like blink and they're over they don't have any more power we actually have to to work them out so he's saying strive and work towards the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace now if you get our newsletter this week 
I quoted this passage and I was actually delighted that this text was already chosen months ago as new kind of recommendations were coming down from the CDC and all of us are like clenching up going, oh, please don't go into a lockdown again. Please don't go into mass mandate again as we're wrestling with what to do with COVID. And so I tried to just say in our newsletter, hey, regardless of decisions, regardless of what your opinion is, regardless of your political position, whatever you feel like is kind of the scariest part of this or the thing you're most afraid of, which we have people all across the spectrum in our church, which I think is actually really healthy. There's a diversity in our body and how we see lots of things, which makes us healthy, but it creates a little bit of friction. I don't know if you know, but people have pretty strong opinions about how to respond to COVID. I don't know if you've been like up on that on Twitter and in the news, but but in those spaces, man, our body just kind of lives into that. And so I was saying, hey, can we embody this kind of posture and behavior? This does not make the decision for us. There's not a single like how in that, but it tells us like what we're to be doing, right? The way that we're to be engaging, or maybe I should flip that around. It'd be more clear if I flip that. It tells us how to relate to each other. Doesn't make a decision for us of what we should actually do, right? So it is not a decoder ring that gives us the answer. It's more like a compass that points us in a direction. Spend some time there because as a body, the way he says, make every effort to maintain unity in the spirit. It means it's actually not just a slam dunk that it's going to happen. We shouldn't just coast towards this, right? This is effort language. This says you have to do something actively in the body, like forgive each other, seek compassion, to ask, why, why, why would you think that? And what, what do you know that I don't know? And what is, what is the value behind what you're doing? To move that way rather than just say that person is wrong or dumb or ignorant or uninformed. Remember back when we were in the Sermon on the Mount, right? We, we learned this issue with like murder starts with like anger, and that starts with insult and dehumanizing a person, reducing them down to a series of ideas or values or beliefs. And so the scripture would call us to actually see people as fully human and give them dignity in in the name of Jesus, made in the image of God in ways that we actually value them and want to come close to them. And so you could be patient and gentle and be humble and, and bear with one another in love to the degree that you saw, we're not just trying to make a decision, we're trying to express this transformation in our relationships. So, so I don't want to like, like low-hanging fruit, but like, would you please make application from this text to this next week as you process mandates and government decisions and things that you wish would happen that don't happen and things that you wish wouldn't happen that do happen? Would you engage this text and ask, am I living a call that's worthy of what Christ has done? Am I striving, am I making every effort to maintain the unity the spirit of the bond and peace? And is my language and behavior and my track inside my mind that I'm telling myself as I think about people, is it marked by humility and gentleness and patience? And am I making efforts to actually bear with each other in love? And I know there's like real concerns and there's real fears. Whatever side you find yourself on, there are real concerns and fears that are driving why you're so passionate about it. I totally get that. And I love that we have people in our body who are all across the spectrum, and you experience this issue in lots of different ways. Some of you are being pressured by your jobs to get a vaccine that you don't think you should have. You have moral convictions of why you don't want the vaccine, and your employer is saying you have to have it or you can't work here. That is a moment of crisis. For some of you who, man, uh, COVID was such a depressing space where you were isolated and alone and you've had this anxiety welling up and you're like, man, if we go into some sort of restricted space again, I don't know how I'm going to make it with my depression and my anxiety. Lots of you guys feel that. There's some of you that have real medical issues and you're going, man, I do not want this thing to spread 
any farther. Some of you guys are really just frustrated with all the rhetoric. Some of you think it's a, it's a thing that we should just no-brainer put masks on, but it's not a no-brainer to everybody else, and so you get really confused and frustrated. We're all across the spectrum. Wherever you find yourself in those real needs and real spaces, like Christ cares about that, and could we be the kind of community that actually moves towards, again, this posture and behavior? Because Christianity is not an abstraction. You don't just say, as a Christian, I throw fire on Twitter and burn people down and smoke people behind their back and slander them and all kinds of rage and malice. No, 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 that's not the way we're supposed to actually behave. And so you can voice strong opinions and you can plead with people and still do it in love. So would you just like be mindful this week and in the weeks ahead? And maybe there's a place where you look back and go, man, I've burned bridges. There's rifts in my family. There might be some repair that you could do in light of this passage to say, man, I don't know if I've made every effort to be unified. Let me move towards individual people, not, not political systems and agendas. I'm talking about humans and people that you can relate to. Super complicated, but obvious application from a text like this. So he says, hey, live out this calling. It's a real transformation. Pursue unity in the spirit and the bond of peace. And he says to do it because we are one. Look in verse 4. The reason why we're supposed to pursue unity is, and he does seven ones and four alls. He's just laboring to say this is about unity. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. So he talks about unity here rooted in the oneness of God himself, right? God is a relational God. It's fascinating that his plan for redemption is rooted in a relational vehicle of the church, but it makes sense if you think that's the way he exists, that he would have his redemption played out relationally. And he says there's a a oneness in this diversity, right? There's different gifts that have been given, but there's a unity, right? There's there's an all and a one in this text. And it's important that we notice in verse 7, he says, this grace was given to each one of you according to the measure of Christ's gift. Christ is the one who ordains and demonstrates and disperses our gifts, our diversity, our differences. So he actually calls us to unity, but he creates us different. And you would go like, why why didn't you just make us all the same? I don't know for sure, but there's something about the differences that we live out being opportunities for us to actually experience our need for grace and our opportunity to extend grace to other people. I think the more different we are gives us more opportunity to go, man, I, I'm needy. I have things in my heart that I need to have addressed. There's places where the diversity and the differences are um, case studies and their context and their petri dishes and their real life relationships where we get a chance to live out our brokenness and repent and extend grace, to ask for forgiveness and to be gracious. And he, he roots this in Christ doing this for us. Christ is the one who gives a measure of the gifts. Now he's going to go into the church and talk about different gifts he's given to the church to build the church up. Right? He's given us gifts in each other to actually help pursue this unity. But before he goes there, he gives us an amazing reminder of how these gifts are actually accomplished. So, so it's a little tricky in verse 8. This is uh, the image in an ancient world of a victor's parade where a king would go off in conquest, would conquer another country, They would plunder it, bring all of the loot back into their city. There would be a huge parade, and two things would happen. People would line the streets, and they would throw flowers and garlands and kind of celebrate the victory. 
And the people would throw off of these parade floats or these chariots or these, these um, kind of war machines. They would throw off the things that they had achieved and accomplished. They would throw out gold. They would throw out jewels. They would, they would throw out some of the plunder for the people, right? So have in your mind this like raucous party festival thing going on when it says, therefore, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives. This host of captives is this war parade and he gave gifts to men in that. It's, it's a victor's parade is the image here. And it's a quote from Psalm 68, verse 18, which is that image. That's where I'm getting that from. And in Psalm 68, what happens is the people are giving gifts to the one who's conquered. But in this passage, it says the one who's conquered gives gifts to men, right? Which is a beautiful demonstration of God's grace. He does all the work and he gives it all to us. And then he's going to say this is rooted in Christ's incarnation, in his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. So the language is a little bit tricky, but look at me in verse 9. He says, In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth, right? He came into our world. And some scholars would say this is the incarnation. Some would say this is him actually going kind of into hell to actually defeat Satan to pay the penalty for our sin. He was descended and is one who was also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave these gifts. These are the gifts getting thrown off of these war machines and these chariots. What are the gifts? What are the spoils of war? This is amazing. It's the gifts to the church to help them live into maturity. And he gave the gifts of apostleship and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers. He gave those gifts to equip the saints for the work of the ministry for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to this unity that he calls us to maintain. These gifts are given so that we could attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and grow all the way into mature manhood to the measure and stature of the fullness of Christ. Okay, so in this imagery of this parade, what Christ did when he died on the cross to prove his faithfulness, to, to purchase a people for himself, made it possible for you and I to be related to him, to be reconciled to him, and for him to give us his spirit. We see in Acts chapter 2, the spirit of God comes and the church becomes alive. And in places like 1 Corinthians 12 and in Romans 12 and in 1 Peter 4, you see these lists of the gifts of the Spirit. And what he's saying is inside of us, the Spirit of God gives us what we need to be a body. And here it sounds like roles, right? These roles of prophets and apostles and evangelists and shepherds and teachers. And in places like Romans 12, we see it broaden out a little bit past just roles to things that the Spirit of God wants to do in us. So there are roles that he gives. There's people, but these people have the gifts of the Holy Spirit inside of them. And so like in Romans 12, verse 7, it says there's a gift of service. And if you have the gift of service, then do, do service. And if teaching, then teaching. And if exhortation, then exhort. And if it's contributing, then do that in generosity. And if it's leadership, then do that with zeal. The one who acts with mercy, do that with cheerfulness. And when you match up the other text, what we see is this is not an exclusive list. It's a summary statement of the kinds of gifts God's giving. So here's what Christ is saying to the church. Hey, I conquered sin, death, hell, and Satan. And as I'm rolling through town in this victory parade, the gifts I'm giving you is not power and approval and stuff and material things. That would be way too small. What I'm giving you is myself through the Spirit so that you would live out what I give you in the body of Christ in a diverse way. And the scriptures would say that how we relate is through these gifts, right? We're not pigeonholed just to the gifts, but he's given capacities and gifts and strengths to you 
to participate in the life of the body, right? So it sounds like he's just given these significant roles, but, but it says that he's given these to each one in the body. So, so not just for a handful of leaders, this is given to everyone. So these spiritual gifts that we get in other passages as summary statements say that what Christ is throwing off of these chariots in his war parade is what the church needs to move forward. He's given us the gifts that we need to actually accomplish the unity that he sets out to give us. And he says, I'm giving you these things so, in verse 13, you could actually grow up into mature manhood or womanhood, to the measure and stature of the fullness of Christ. You actually experience the fullness of Jesus in the body of Christ as you live out these gifts. Verse 14, so that you may no longer be children. He contrasts growing up in mature manhood with being a child, and he describes a child as someone who is tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, by deceitful schemes. And rather than that, rather than being deceived, we should speak the truth in love. And we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head. He's the one this thing is about. We grow up into that as we speak the truth to each other. That's how we mature, and we grow up into Christ who is the head. And from him, the whole body is joined and held together. It's all about him. Every joint has its beginning in him, which is how he has equipped us. And when each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So what he's saying here is he's given gifts to the church. And as you live out those gifts, you grow into maturity. And as you grow into maturity, then the body of Christ also grows into maturity. He's talking about an interdependent connectedness that we have as God's people. It's one by the body imagery, right? It's not just these amputated parts that you get to like praise and rank. It's this one thing that's knit together. And he's saying, I'm giving all this to you so that you would grow up and mature. Here's the main idea in that, that Christ's victory on the cross gave you what you needed to participate in the life of our body so that you could grow and mature and our body would also grow and mature so that we could walk in a manner worthy of what he's called us to and we could pursue this unity right it all fits together and what the takeaways are for that is that you matter that christ has already accomplished what we need as a church he's given us parameters and how to engage in those it's actually about unity it's not about proving ourselves or ranking ourselves it's about us growing up into maturity so that we can actually demonstrate the beauty of who god is and tell the world what he's done that's that's what it means to participate in the life of the church. So, so how do you meaningfully engage? You engage that, you receive that, you, you process that, you understand that, you, you process this way of relating in ways that are generous and kind and patient. You look to Jesus, you ask him to grow you, and you use your gifts in the body so that the whole body, which is being held together by Jesus, actually grows and matures. So it's a call to significant engagement in the life of the body. There is no like solo Christian disconnected free agent out there. And I know COVID has changed things so much. We all had to like disperse for a while and it was really hard and unnatural. And we're still kind of recovering from some of that wondering like, do I need to come back and how do I engage? And I realize we have friends online who like they're in situations where they're homebound and can never come back. And that space, man, there's like an effort that we have to put out as a church and they have to put out as people to actually be connected. God, just say like, like, look in the camera and say, we love you. We're for you. Please communicate with us what you need. We're praying for you. We, we really, really care. And there are people that are at home who are yet to come back, who, who could come back. And, and you're feeling the atrophy of being disconnected 
from the body. And I don't say that to shame. I don't have anybody particular in my mind. I say that, though, to invite you to say, man, we miss you. And this text says we won't be as mature as we need to be if we don't have you in the body. He's given gifts to the body to help grow us up. And he's given it to the church so that we can have what we need. And if part of the church is not engaging, either physically present but not engaging, or not physically present, then we can't be as strong or as mature as we need to be. And I don't mean strong like impressive. I mean mature like this calls us to, to actually live into the good news of the gospel and to be transformed. Because it's in that diversity that we encounter each other and are actually transformed and changed. So, so it's this participation in the body that grows us and builds us up. And as that happens, and the body itself is grown and built up. It's this beautiful interdependence, interconnectedness that God's designed. And it just makes sense because he's a relational God. He exists in diversity and unity in the Trinity. So it makes sense that he would design his church like that, where there would be a unity and a diversity, and you get called into participating into that. So for the sake of time, I think I've made my point. Let me move on to what you've all been waiting for, to our bylaws. I know you can't like... You're super pumped about this. All right. But I wanted to say all that because our bylaws are just random legal documents if they're not rooted in this, right? So as the church is asked, what does that look like? Okay, okay, great. I get it. I want to have meaningful engagement. I want to use the gifts of the Spirit. I want to be a part of the body. I want to grow, and I want the church to grow. What does that look like? Our church has come up with six, and I'll argue seven kind of summary categories saying, hey, if you want to belong to us and not like be on the in crowd, it just means be connected. So, so membership in a church is not in and out. It's not like the, remember Dr. Seuss book, like the star-bellied sneeches and those without stars. It's not, it's not who's good and who's bad. That's not what membership is about. Membership is about responsibility and moving towards each other and, and taking ownership of growth and faith. That, that's what it means to be a member. We don't see the word in scripture, but we see over and over and over descriptions of what it looks like to belong to a local body. There's a list of names so they knew who was there. Even the imagery of just a body implies these parts that are connected and are identified. Uh, an illustration of a building and part, parts that are connected and identified, right? Even bride and groom, right? It's an identified relationship, right? It's an identified space where you are now connected. And here's what our church has said. So this is from section four, responsibility of members. As members of Leewood Baptist Church, which we would love to invite you to be one of these with us, we will commit ourselves, one, to care for one another through prayer and deeds. To be a member of a church isn't like a jacket that you get or a special parking place. It's the opportunity you have to pray for your brothers and sisters and to serve them, to live out the one another commands and to bear burdens and use your gifts to help build up the body through deeds and to pray for people. So our members get a list of our members in a prayer directory that asks them to tuck in their Bibles so they see the list of members that they're committed to pray for. It's a requirement in our membership. We're saying to be meaningfully connected and to bear your burdens and to walk alongside of you and to see you mature, I'm going to pray for you and I'm going to serve you. And, and I love, man, we have people that are quietly doing that. I'll get emails of, hey, so-and-so, I, I went and visited somebody who was been homebound for a number of years. I prayed for them. Uh, they say hi. They watch online. They're doing great, and they need this. Would you help? They're like, I love our people who are quietly serving and engaging in the life of our body. It's really, really beautiful. But the first commitment to live this out, what it actually looks like, not an abstraction, but in real life, is to care for each other through active prayer and through serving with good deeds. 
Number two, to participate in worship each week unless ill, out of town, or providentially hindered. It's a little bit dated, some of the language in this, but I love it saying, hey, I'm going to show up. I'm not going to be a freelance dude that's just kind of floating around. I'm going to make every effort. Unless I'm sick or out of town or can't make it, I'm going to actually come and be a part of the body because I want to be a part of the body, which the logic of that is pretty profound and helpful, I think. And so in that space, right, again, there's reasons why you can't be here, which we totally understand, but we miss you when you're not here. So to be a member is to make a commitment to actually be involved in the life of our body. And the church went a little more specific. And number three, it says, we're committing to participate in at least one spiritual growth opportunity in our church on a weekly basis in addition to the weekly worship service. So I'm going to come on Sundays and I want to find some other way to grow in our bodies. Whether it's a small group or it's a class or it's a, a men's or women's event, there's another kind of gathering. I'm going to commit myself to engage. We think in terms of an ecosystem where, where it all kind of fits together in our small groups and our classes in our different environments, even potlucks are meant to help us kind of come together and get to know each other. It's saying, I'm going to participate, and I realize Sunday mornings is essential and valuable, but it's not enough. So, so the commitment as a member is to participate in, in regular ways to live out that transformation, right? To hear the good news of the gospel applied to you and to give you a space to unburden yourself and to be in the word together and to pray together, whether that's a social class or a small group, we're committing to participate in something else outside of this room, which I love. There's tons of flexibility, right? It's not like a, a legal thing, but it is a space where we say, hey, I'm striving to be in relationships outside of this room. Number four, to participate in at least one ministry or missions activity of our church each year. This was amazing to me. Our church is saying, we want you at least once a year to engage outside of our walls with us in ways that we spread the good news, to be outward facing as part of our membership commitment, right? Far from like just patting our own nest and being all focused here, it's saying use your gifts, use your talents, use your efforts outside these walls at least once a year. Hey, what, what if we did that? Man, our community would be radically different if we took that serious and we engaged outwardly in our community. And then it says to serve in at least one area inside our church, right? To be on a team, to engage, whether that's in a deacon or a lay team or it's serving. And, and, and let's not think about ushering like you're just standing at the door. Think of it as you being the first person someone sees to greet them in the name of Jesus and welcome them regardless of where their story's at. Because people come into this room with all kinds of pain and hurt and chaos and trauma. And you get a chance to show the love of Jesus in really, really, really beautiful ways, right? So to jump in and to participate, to actually serve. And kids ministry is not babysitting, it's discipleship. And, and engaging in life, our body in really, really significant Ways. Number six, it says to contribute regularly and faithfully to the financial needs of our church and to its ministry. It says we want to have this act of worship where we loosen our grip on our stuff to say, my hope is not in my money that I could use for control or power or approval. I want to actually have a liturgy of letting that go, giving that back to God and trusting that to him and to support the local mission of our church. Right? It's a, a regular commitment to give to the life of our body. And then the next section after those six, it goes into a section on church discipline, which you're like, well, this is really romantic. But, but here's the deal. Church discipline is not about good and bad and bringing down a heavy hand. It's a faithful commitment to actually love each other, to say, I care so much about you. I'm going to fight for your soul. And if you are drifting and you are running and you are indulging in sin and you are living in things that are harming you, I'm going to be there for you because I love you. And I took a commitment to this church to walk alongside of you. 
It's not keeping tabs on each other and spanking whoever out of bounds. It's coming alongside the body and saying, I love you so much. I'm going to put effort into keeping you on the rails. And there's a formative, proactive way of that. And sometimes it doesn't go well. And there needs to be a corrective action in that as well. So as a church, we're committed to courageously loving each other. Which makes sense of the rest of these things, right? If we're in the Word and we're in community and we're confessing our sins, we're walking with each other, we shouldn't get to a place where we have that kind of line. But can you see church discipline as a courageous attempt to rescue and help and to communicate the love of Jesus in dark places with boldness and courage to come and rescue your brothers and sisters? That is our commitment to each other. Hey, man, that's what I want to give my life to. I think it's meaningful. I think it actually reflects the love of Jesus. And it's a space where you're invited into something that's not like impressive, but it's real. It won't make you famous in our community and esteem you with your friends and neighbors, but it will be significant in the ways that you grow. And the way the scriptures say to meaningfully engage is to be part of the body in ways that you grow and are maturing and the church is actually maturing as well. And we stop and just go, and all this is about Jesus it's not about our programs, it's not about our ecosystem, it's not about our bylaws, it's about Jesus, right? This text says he is the head of the body. It says he is the foundation and the cornerstone of the building. He is the groom that wins the bride. It is all about him. This is worth giving our life to because it's about him and he gave his life for it so we could actually be in a relationship and a family with him. And I say that to say that's why we take communion every week to remember how this family actually exists, why it's possible for us to come together. And so followers of Jesus, I would invite you to take communion this morning. There's these little cups that have a little wafer and a little thing of juice. They're designed to remind you of the broken body and shed blood of Jesus. If you're not a follower of Jesus, you can just sit in your seat and pray. There's prayers in the back of your bulletin that would give you some examples. But, but I want you to actually engage in this moment and say, Jesus, thank you for making it possible for me to be part of your body, not just LBC, but, but your body. And then ask him to speak to you with wherever you are in light of all the things that I've said this morning and what this text calls us to. But start with Jesus. Thank him for making a bride, for making a body, for inviting you into the building. Start in that space and then ask him to speak to you now. Jesus, we ask for your help. We love you. We're grateful. I'm humbled by what you're doing in this place. Thanks that it's all about you and your spirit. Would you be with my friends now and grow them even in this moment? as we remember your sacrifice. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us online. Leewood Baptist Church exists to glorify God by making disciples of all nations. For more information about us and our ministry, please visit us at www.leewoodbaptist.com.